The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 73 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 68, and we battle for the Earth. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Sal Buscema, inks by Sam Granger, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in September of 1969. Taking a look at our cover, I would have to say that this cover is fairly middle of the road. It isn't any kind of spectacular or special, but the art on the cover is solid. It's not all that bizarre. It speaks at least a little bit to the content of the issue, but at the same time, with the white background, it feels a little bit washed out, and it's kind of ambiguous. Nothing's really happening, so while it's not a bad cover, it's certainly nothing special, nothing to write home about, and that's why I would say it really is an average, middle-of-the-road kind of cover. Unfortunately, that average, middle-of-the-road take on this issue that starts with the cover continues through the rest of the issue. As you will have noticed, our artist has changed on this issue from the very, very talented Barry Windsor Smith to Sal Buscema. Now, not to speak ill of Sal Buscema because his work is very good, it would have been really nice to see Barry Windsor Smith get to finish the third issue of this arc. I couldn't find any good reason as to why Windsor Smith didn't finish the arc, especially given that this is the last of three issues. Moving along into our issue, we start with our opening splash page, which picks up effectively immediately where last issue leaves off, with Ultron hand on the lever, ready to annihilate New York. Remember last issue left on this big cliffhanger where Ultron was getting ready to destroy all of Manhattan, and the Avengers and S.H.I.E.L.D. agents were rushing in to try and stop him. So now we pick up as Ultron pulls the lever, and nothing happens. Much to Ultron's surprise, in fact. Ultron pulls pulls the lever, nothing happens, and he stops and starts trying to figure out why there isn't a nuclear Armageddon in progress, with him the only survivor at the center of this maelstrom. I will say that this issue does a really good job of giving Ultron a little bit more human characteristics, especially here he looks exceptionally confused. But at the same time, it's a little weird that they make Ultron scratch his head and pull at his chin where a beard might be. Now, as a man who sports a beard myself, I can understand the desire when one is deep in contemplation to stroke one's beard. It's just kind of a natural thing. And as we can all attest to, most most humans will scratch their head in confusion. But at this point, it hasn't been canonically established that Ultron is actually based on a human. As we know, as modern comic readers, he's based on Hank Pym's brain patterns. So it feels very weird for a robot, an android-like Ultron. 
Ultron to be demonstrating these very human characteristics, especially when Ultron spends a lot of time going out of his way to demonstrate and prognosticate on how much better he is than humans, and yet he exhibits such human behavior. This scene also reminds me a lot of a brief scene in The Emperor's New Groove where Yzma tells Kronk to pull the lever, and Kronk pulls the wrong lever and drops Yzma down a pit into water, and then she comes back and they pull the correct lever. Pull the lever, Kronk. But it's one of those moments where you pull the lever and you expect something to happen and something completely different happens. Or in this case, nothing happens. It is a nice comical moment that diffuses the edge of your seat kind of cliffhanger that the last issue left us on. Now, of course, Ultron doesn't get a whole lot of time to sit and contemplate what's going on because the Avengers and the S.H.I.E.L.D. squad, uh, Suicide Squad 1, if you remember from two issues ago, break into the portion of Ultron's headquarters where he is currently residing and they attack Ultron. Now, of course, the Avengers attempt a direct assault on Ultron. As one might predict, it's about as successful as Thor's attempt to attack Ultron last issue. And in fact, it has roughly the same results, though for different reasons. In this case, instead of it being the collision of Ultron's adamantium and Thor's Mjolnir, this time Ultron makes use of his ionic energy form and blows through the Avengers, only to rematerialize momentarily and then immediately disappear from the scene. While the art here is really good, especially the scene of the Avengers getting thrown back, the storytelling here is a little bit tough, where we get the Avengers thrown back, and then a single panel of Ultron, and then a panel of Goliath saying he's gone. The only way I can kind of piece together what happened, one is Ultron's ionic form that was brought up last issue, and secondly, in the single panel of Ultron between the panel of the Avengers and of, of Goliath, if you look carefully, there's a number of rapid motion lines like Ultron is moving very fast, or if that he's materialized momentarily. But otherwise, the art and even the captions aren't overly clear as to what exactly is happening here. I find that very unfortunate because I had to spend a fair amount of time sitting here trying to literally read between the lines and figure out what was going on before I could move forward in the story. So once I did figure that out, it's pretty clear that Ultron, knowing his plot has failed, has evacuated the area and is intending to regroup so that he can figure out what's going on and attack the Avengers again. So the Avengers have a little bit of a respite. During this period of time, Vision makes his way back to the Avengers in a fairly worn down and disheveled, certainly somewhat exhausted state. And Vision explains to the Avengers that he is the reason Ultron was unable to nuke Midtown Manhattan because while the Avengers were making their way there and after Ultron had beaten down Vision pretty hard in the last issue, Vision made his way to the controls for Ultron's device and just started ripping things to pieces so that when Ultron pulled the lever, nothing happened. Now it's worth pointing out here, one, that Vision is ripping apart the equipment that Ultron stated last issue he expected to find in perfect working order 
order because it was too dangerous to dismantle. So that seems like a little bit of a questionable judgment call to start ripping apart all this equipment because of how dangerous it was. Also, Vision alludes to the fact that he rebuilt Ultron and that his actions are worthy of condemnation. And we get an editorial note saying that Vision was under a post-hypnotic command to rebuild Ultron two issues ago. I want to take a minute and kind of discuss the idea of a post-hypnotic suggestion. Now, first and foremost, I think we can throw out an actual post-hypnotic suggestion as what happened to Vision, because Vision being a synthesoid, being an android effectively, Vision's mind is a computer. You can't provide these post-hypnotic suggestions to a computer. Now, taking into account that Vision's brain probably functions differently and possibly more like a human brain, you know, we can kind of just accept that concept and roll with it, but I had to do a little bit of research to figure out how realistic a post-hypnotic suggestion would be under the assumption that one could affect vision in the first place. As it turns out, this is not the most unreasonable thing I've ever seen in comics. I realize that's a fairly broad statement because there are lots of unreasonable things in comics, but a post-hypnotic suggestion is at least plausible. So there are a couple of different schools of thought, those being direct and indirect post-hypnotic hypnotic suggestion, but really a lot of the ideas are the same. The difference being direct is more of a command, indirect is more of a suggestion, more of a request, if you will. But the goal is the same in that they input an idea into someone's mind in this hypnotic trance and that when a particular trigger is activated, then this post-hypnotic behavior will be executed by the individual. So let's take, for example, if someone was using it to try and quit smoking, the post-hypnotic suggestion could be triggered by them reaching for a pack of cigarettes, and it would help direct them to do something differently to help them break the habit of smoking. Under normal circumstances, most of these triggers are fairly mundane, fairly simple, and that helps them to be accepted by the individual. The individual doesn't try to consciously fight back. One of the things I came across is the idea that the more unusual a trigger, the more likely it is that a person with the suggestion will consciously fight back against it. So with that in mind, while this is certainly a very unusual suggestion and probably has an unusual trigger, it is at least possible for this to be implanted. On top of that, it's possible for a post-hypnotic suggestion to exist for an individual for a short period of time or for longer periods of time, including years. So again, it's possible, although not necessarily likely, that Several years earlier, this was implanted in Division, unknown to him, and that he just recently came across his trigger and began to execute the actions implanted. Finally, this also explains the trance-like state that Vision was in for periods of the last two issues. Typically, when someone is actually executing the suggestion, they go into a trance-like state similar to that of the actual hypnosis while they are executing the task and then come back out of it. So, all said and done, while not necessarily the most plausible explanation for what happened, I would say that there is at least an outside possibility that this could work at least to some extent. Maybe not quite as involved as it's portrayed in this issue, however, it at least has some potential. 
All right, now that we've taken that diversion for a little while, getting back to our story, the Avengers make their way back to Avengers Mansion after having conversed with Vision. And at the end of that conversation, Vision collapses. So the Avengers are rushing him back to the mansion and they hook him up to the machine we saw a few issues back when Black Panther and Hawkeye were testing Vision's energy absorption. And basically the Avengers are trying to recharge Vision because he is so low on energy. Now, one of the things that gets mentioned here that I really, really like is that Vision's power storage has an upper limit. Now, while that doesn't seem like a big deal, what we often see in superhero comics is the idea of power creep, where over time, heroes become more powerful as part of the storytelling. The hero starts off fighting fairly mundane, low-powered villains, and in order to keep the intensity of the story up, you have to give them bigger and badder and more powerful villains to fight. Well, as you do that, that means the hero's abilities and powers must rise to meet that threat. The idea of power creep is that eventually you reach a point where these characters are so supremely powerful that the threats you have to introduce in order to give them something worth fighting is astronomical and at times beyond belief. So giving Vision an upper threshold of power, although not clearly defined, at least introducing the concept means that there's going to be villains potentially that are more powerful than that and that Vision can't just punch his way through. Unfortunately for the Avengers here, while Vision is recuperating and recharging, he's effectively unconscious. But Vision obviously has information the Avengers want because Vision is responsible for helping rebuild Ultron. And they're trying to figure out how Vision built Ultron using adamantium when adamantium in its solid form can't be melted down, can't be reformed. So the Avengers have kind of been scratching their head about this on and off. And finally, Yellowjacket dons this gigantic mind probe in order to read Vision's thoughts. This thing looks absolutely ridiculous. And in fact, Yellowjacket has to strap it around his waist and it kind of attaches to his chest. And it's just this ginormous, unwieldy piece of equipment that is very awkward for its given purpose. But Yellowjacket uses this piece of equipment and begins to read Vision's mind and discovers that Vision used a piece of equipment called a molecular rearranger in order to form Ultron. The idea behind this piece of equipment is, as is moderately self-explanatory, it rearranges the molecules of the adamantium in order to reshape it. Now, I do have to give Sal Basuma and Sam Granger a lot of credit here because the two panels involving reading Vision's mind have the most amazing coloring with this beautiful Kirby crackle. It almost looks like the molecular rearranger idea is trying to burn its way out of Vision's head. It's very, very cool. And it's got a very dark, sinister undertone to it that agrees a lot with the tone of the last two issues and the idea that Ultron is this potentially unstoppable force the Avengers are going to have to come up against. With this information, the Avengers go and contact S.H.I.E.L.D. because S.H.I.E.L.D. owns the Molecular Rearranger. And on further investigation, they discover that the Molecular Rearranger is in fact missing. 
Their excuse is that in all the chaos of vision attacking and trying to look for the adamantium, the disappearance of the molecular rearranger was missed. I find that somewhat hard to believe. I always like to think that a thorough investigation into the disappearance of a piece of equipment would involve seeing what other pieces of equipment might be missing. But then again, that's me. That's my personal experience and training. Apparently these shield scientists don't share that with me. So at this point, I have to assume that this molecular rearranger device is going to play a large role in the resolution of this story. And unfortunately, I'm here to say that it plays no further role in this issue. And that bugs me to no end. The molecular rearranger is very much a red herring for this plot, and it kind of irritates me. The Avengers, having learned about the molecular rearranger and determining that this was in fact the device that Vision used are already forming a plan and that plan requires vibranium that the Avengers are acquiring from their fellow teammate Black Panther who doesn't happen to be with the team he's home at the moment fighting off an invasion force but with that Black Panther makes a very quick decision and immediately sends the Avengers what they ask for because although he is unable to help himself he is at least able to aid the Avengers by providing them material support as opposed to his physical presence. So from here we find Ultron off at some other hidden base he has, preparing to once again fight the Avengers, kind of contemplating what's going on, and listening to the news where there's an announcement that the eminent physicist Dr. Myron McLean will be addressing the United Nations. Now, Dr. McLean happens to be the same S.H.I.E.L.D. scientist that the Avengers have been conversing with the last several issues, and one of the men who is behind Adamantium, who has the formula. Ultron recognizes that this announcement, that this speaking engagement is most likely a trap set by the Avengers, but the opportunity to find the molecular formula for adamantium and be able to create an entire army of Ultron robots with which to conquer the world is a little bit too good for Ultron to pass up, so he decides that he's going to take the bait and go after Dr. McLean. Now one thing I should point out is I would not be surprised if this is where the idea, the origin of the Ultron army in Age of Ultron came from. Ultron talks about having an army of mindless robots at his command to take over the world and in Age of Ultron that is very much what the character had. Now in the film because Adamantium is more closely associated with Wolverine and the Fox films Ultron is made out of vibranium in that film but the idea is the same that Ultron wants to this unbeatable army of mindless super soldiers at his command. We next find the Avengers heading to the United Nations with everyone minus Yellow Jacket, who has stated that he has business elsewhere that needs to be attended to. And we also find we have another new Wasp costume. Upon leaving Avengers Mansion, Wasp mentions that she has nothing to wear, and so on her next appearance on the next page, we find Wasp in a brand new costume. A very um, ancient Greek kind of style. It's a little toga-esque with the single shoulder strap and kind of a loose rope-looking belt around her waist, and very high go-go-ish boots. Not the most practical for super heroics, but then again, female costumes at this point really have 
no basis in reality or practicality. So not that it's a good costume, but anyways, the Avengers find themselves listening in on Dr. McLean's speech. And to most of the assembled delegates, it would sound like Dr. McLean is speaking specifically about nuclear weapons and really the idea of nuclear non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament. It's worth noting here, little do they know that Dr. McLean is actually talking about Ultron, which we will see in a couple of panels. Nuclear non-proliferation is a very hot-button issue at this time. So the cover date on this issue, again, is September of 1969. The Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons was originally originally signed in 1968, or at least that was when it was opened for signature for the initial round of countries, so a little more than a year before this issue's cover date, and the treaty went into effect on March 5th of 1970, so roughly six months after the cover date for this issue. So this puts it right in the middle of a very topical, very of-the-moment nuclear non-proliferation debate. This is very much a current issue that Roy Thomas is taking and shaping to additionally fit the arguments and, and the requirements of the plot. This is Roy Thomas introducing his own political ideas. We talk about our own rampant technology and the human race being endangered. Although it comes down to being Ultron in the story, in no way, shape, or form does that diminish the idea that this is also absolutely applicable to nuclear weapons, and that concept shouldn't be ignored, right? Again, comics are not just these wonderful, somewhat fanciful stories that we get told. They're also a very capable conduit for discussing some more difficult issues like this. We've already seen the Avengers discuss racism and rampant nationalism when we saw the Sons of the Serpent, and here we're talking about the threat that nuclear weapons have on mankind. We're just also somewhat co-opting this this argument to further our story. As I mentioned, co-opting this idea, Ultron 6 arrives, only it's not quite the same Ultron we've seen the last issue and a half. This is an even newer form of Ultron who announces himself as Ultimate Ultron. And instead of having this rocket sled body that we've seen previously, Ultron is back to a more human form, although somewhat as a means to discern him from Ultron 5, between the elbow and shoulder and the hip and just below the knee, Ultron basically looks like a skeleton. So instead of having standard kind of armor covering his biceps and his thighs, Ultron just has what look like bones from a human skeleton open and kind of exposed. Now this is two things for me. One, although the parody of the human form here is kind of an interesting idea that Ultron is kind of beyond human form. Ultron spends a lot of time time trying to distance himself from humanity and here he's almost perverting the human form to his designs which is kind of a cool idea but I think the execution is really kind of goofy it's like a partially dressed a partially armored terminator if it were the whole skeleton that would be cool or if it were none of the skeleton, that would be really cool. But this halfway thing, especially like the parts he chose to be halfway, are just very bizarre. So he's got a somewhat comical look that removes some of the threatening nature of Ultron. The other part is that, and I didn't realize this on my first or second read through, it was really my third time through this issue that I picked up on it, Ultron has exposed significant portions of his internal mechanics as a result of removing these pieces of armor, or of not including 
killing them, whichever happens to be the case. While the Avengers don't take advantage of this, it seems like a wide open means of assault that should be exploited and potentially weakens Ultron, I would say a significant amount. Now, initially, the Avengers aren't the first ones to attack Ultron. That honor goes to a number of security guards who are in the room and immediately open up on Ultron with no effect. About the only thing useful that the security guards do is let us, the reader, know that Ultron is eight feet tall. So this is not only a different Ultron, it's a much bigger Ultron. Again, going back to the Age of Ultron film, this is like that final version of Ultron who appears when the other version of Ultron is talking to Black Widow and he punches through the first Ultron and rips him in half and there's the bigger stronger vibranium Ultron it's the same idea where it's just this beefed up version of Ultron unfortunately through the rest of this issue though Ultron's proportions don't seem quite right so I never really get the feeling he's actually that big sometimes he looks six feet tall sometimes he looks ten feet tall there's never any kind of consistency with some of the other characters so it's useful that they told me how tall he is but I never get that sense of overpowering size and strength from Ultron. As I mentioned earlier in the issue, we saw what happened when the Avengers confronted Ultron, and it looked a lot like when Thor hit Ultron with Mjolnir. Well, in this case, Thor's the first Avenger to get a crack at Ultron, and because Thor doesn't learn very quickly in this era, he throws Mjolnir at Ultron again, but this time, instead of that same blowback that we saw before, that violent impact, it looks like Ultron goes to his ionic form for a moment, and that Mjolnir just passes right through. But again, it's thoroughly ineffective. So Goliath decides to take matters into his own hands and attempts to squash Ultron like a bug for an extremely humorous, very well-timed comic panel. I should say comedic panel because these are all comic panels. A comedic panel, though, that does serve to break the tension a little bit in this issue, then immediately turn around and add more tension, which is, I think, a strong bit of storytelling where you lighten the mood only to smash it back down and make things were all dark when Ultron is in fact not smashed, crawls out of the hole he was in, and blinds Goliath, removing him from the fight. Thor makes a valiant attempt again to take on Ultron, but is disabled by a blast from some kind of wrist-mounted weapon that Ultron has. And now Ultron is free to deal with Dr. McClane. And as we find out, Ultron has built in a mind-draining probe, basically a chest-mounted version of the device that Yellow Jacket used on Vision. And Ultron uses this to try and strip away the information he wants from Dr. McLean, who at this point looks surprisingly like Orson Welles. In other images, he really doesn't, but in these two or three panels towards the end of the book, he has a very Orson Welles-like look to him, and it's kind of fun. It's not amazing, it's not super important, but I kind of go, hey, I think it's Orson Welles. Unfortunately for Ultron, as he strips this information out of Dr. McLean's head, something begins to go terrible terribly, terribly wrong. There is some kind of information here that Ultron was not expecting to be there, and whatever it is, it begins to rip Ultron apart from 
inside, both mentally and as it looks physically, Ultron is just coming apart at the seams. Again, Salbosima and Sam Gr Granger do a great job on the art here, where I honestly believe that Ultron's head is getting ready to implode. And as Ultron staggers away, slowly but surely being unable to deal with this, he throws Dr. McLean away and declares that he still has the power within himself to destroy New York City and that he is not going to die alone. He is unwilling to go out by himself. He's going to take all of New York with him. At which point, Thor calls Wasp for the, quote, special prism, which Thor then is able to unwrap into a giant vibranium shield, which he covers Ultron with. And as Ultron explodes, the vibranium, because what it does, absorbs the vibrations, absorbs the energy from the explosion, and prevents Ultron from destroying the entire city. What we find as our issue wraps up is that the individual whom we all assumed was Dr. McClane was in fact Yellow Jacket, Hank Pym, under a hypnotized suggestion. He memorized this speech, and outside of that speech he had one thought in his mind. Thou shalt not kill. The idea behind this is that that idea, especially being so prevalent within Hank Pym's mind, overwhelmed Ultron's brain and he was forced to self-destruct. So we'll leave our issue with the Avengers looking down on a small crater of molten Kirby crackling goo that was Ultron. In the end, again, this is a a middle-of-the-road issue. Given how strong the last two issues were and how high-intensity, high-stakes they were, I find the end of this issue kind of a letdown. Now, don't get me wrong, I really like the vibranium shield that the Avengers used to contain the self-destruct. It's a little comic book goofy, but it was also fun, it was clever, but the idea of introducing this single thought and that it would overpower Ultron and cause him to melt down effectively is a little bit far-fetched for me. Conceptually, Ultron, again, we know is based on Hank Pym, but even if we didn't, right, Ultron is at least as intelligent and capable as a human. I think we can we can all agree on that. And I have a hard time finding any human being that a single thought would cause them to completely shut down. Now, there are times where people suffer from these world crippling instances, but it is certainly within the capability of a human being to overcome those kinds of world shattering, earth shaking life-changing thoughts and concepts. So the idea that Ultron is unable to adapt. And there's a difference between unable and unwilling. There are plenty of people out there who are thoroughly incapable of accepting a different thought than what they have. Uh, there's a lot of people, racist, sexist, homophobic, right? People who fall into those categories tend to be those people who are unwilling to change. They are not incapable of change, they are unwilling to do so. So the idea that Ultron, who is, again, we will find out is based on a human being, but again, at least as capable as a human being, should be capable of adapting. Whether or not he was willing to is a different matter. Also, again, I'm frustrated that the molecular rearranger turned out to be such a red herring. It would have made a lot more sense to use that to disable Ultron. Or, I mean, they still could have turned him into this little pile of goo. That would have been fun. It would have just been via the molecular rearranger. So it disappoints me that 
they introduced this idea. They explained how it happened in the first place, and then they kind of backtrack on it. Also, Ultron stated that he would have survived this nuclear holocaust that he had intended to induce earlier. So I have to scratch my head a little bit and try and figure out why it was that Ultron didn't survive this one. Now, maybe it was the concentrated nature, and maybe it was the fact that it was probably from inside Ultron as opposed to an external force. But at the same time, at least parts of Ultron should have survived this and they didn't. So that leaves me scratching my head, wanting a little bit more. With regards to the art, again, I, I pointed out several places I thought the art was very good. Sal Buscema does a fantastic job with the art, but it's not Barry Windsor Smith. And again, I would have liked to have seen him finish out the arc. I think he probably would have done a better job with Ultimate Ultron. And I think I made my thoughts known of as to not particularly liking Ultimate Ultron's look from Buscema. It's not that it was badly done, but it was a style choice that I didn't like. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 69, Let the Game Begin! Alright, hey! Alright, good job, guys. Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.